It's the show the establishment warned you about. That's right, it's the Dr. Tommy Show. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us live from the heart of Florida, the free state, Tampa, Florida, from Echelon Health Studios. DrTommy.com slash podcast for all the different listening options live on Rumble and available on all podcasting platforms. Was away last week because I'm building a massive deck in preparation for Memorial Day. And uh, so those those are the uh, uh, things that are coming up for this weekend for us is a is a big uh, Memorial Day gathering at my house. So that's why I wasn't here last week. But anyway, this week we're back and glad you're here. Thank you for uh, subscribing to the new subscribers and thank you for sharing. So we're going to talk about Ron DeSantis today and the uh, entrance, obviously, into the presidential race and the implications of that. We're also going to talk a little bit about the culture wars and uh, how they are shaping up as far as being a part of the political process going forward for the presidential election and in the, in the broader context of America. And we're also going to talk about uh, some of this oh, BLM, which is now the, the cylindra of, uh, uh, of uh, what do you call it, race-based race, uh, pressure groups. Solyndra, as you remember, is the uh, bankrupt uh, solar power company that uh, Barack Obama gave millions and millions of dollars to. And this is similar to what happened with BLM. They're going bust now after getting millions of dollars. And we're also going to talk about, we're going to talk a little bit about this um, white supremacists that are in the liberal left faction of the country and why they are maybe even unwittingly white supremacists when they talk about uh, Tim Scott and Clarence Thomas the way they do, like Joy Joy Behar, the uh, one of the uh, uh, members of the coven over at the the View. So let's go ahead and get started with uh, Ron DeSantis, our governor, has declared, and this was something that was predicted a long time ago that some people were going to do. I had hoped he would not do this because I would prefer him stay our governor for two more years. And if he becomes the president, then he would not be able to finish his second term. That being said, he is in the race now. And uh, there's a lot of, obviously, from both sides of the um, pro and anti-DeSantis camps, there's some reasons why he is going to either fail or not do well. Or do well. Um, the Trump side of the camp seems to be pushing the um, the thought that he is a Paul Ryan clone and therefore bad for the uh, country. Uh, Donald Trump's been going on record saying that Ron DeSantis is going to try to take away Social Security and take away Medicare, which sounds an awful lot like Democrats, to be honest. Uh, that's the Democrat mantra from since I can remember, since I was first first election I remember is Bill Clinton versus George H.W. Bush back in uh, 1992 with Ross Perot in there for for added measure. But that was the uh, that's been the mantra forever that the Republicans want to destroy Social Security, want to make the old people eat cat food instead of uh, regular food and choose between their medicines and also whether or not they're able to buy uh, food. And I actually that does take place now. And it's not because of Republicans. It's because of Social Security and Medicare. Which brings to point the uh, the um, the question is is Social Security are Social Security Medicare programs worth defending as Donald Trump is saying that Ron DeSantis is not a, a good person for because he doesn't want to uh, prop them up. Uh, Donald Trump says that they are great programs, 
and that uh, we need to strengthen them, which is obvious. It's the mantra of every establishment Republican that's ever run and every Democrat is we need to strengthen Social Security and strengthen Medicare. When in actual fact, what we need to do is wind both of those programs down. We've talked about the Ponzi scheme aspects of both of those programs. Both of them are Ponzi schemes in the literal sense. They take new investors, quote unquote, people who have their money taken out of their check unwillingly uh, and give that money to the current people who have invested, quote unquote, in the past in hopes that they're going to be able to continue to get new and new and more and more investors in to keep paying these uh, these uh, payments to the current investors so that to keep the Ponzi scheme going. But this Ponzi scheme is, is running out of steam. And it will run out of steam eventually. And what will happen is people will slowly be kicked off the rolls. And it won't be a, a watershed event where they say one day, well, there's no more Social Security, there's no more Medicare. What will happen is they'll say, okay, we need to raise the limits, we need to raise the ages, we need to put income restrictions on, we need to raise the taxes. It's going to be a, a gradual process, but the the core of it is going to stay in place until it, until the whole country probably collapses, whenever that may be, maybe soon, uh, with the debt limit ceiling uh, debate going on with $32 trillion in debt now. You know, that's not even a real number. $32 trillion has never existed in the world if you took into inflation and combined all of the assets of every civilization civilization that's ever existed, it's a fictitious number. It's a it's an accounting uh, fantasy, anyway. But but in, until the time that Social Security does you know collapse completely, like I said, with the rest of the, the rest of the government, maybe um, they're going to just you know nibble away at the edges and then make people who were paying into it get it later, and then they're going to make people who are making a certain amount of money get less, just like they do with every other handout program. And, and and let's be honest, Social Security and Medicare are, at their core, welfare programs. And people say, well, I, I'm not on welfare. I paid into that. I, I'm not saying that you're on welfare. I'm saying that you are paying taxes. The taxes that you are paying are being paid out to other people, Okay. And you may have paid taxes in before, but those taxes that you paid in before, if you're retiring now, is not the same money you're getting now. That money that you paid in before went into the general fund after there was a little accounting transaction that said, okay, we're going to take this money out of the general, I'm sorry, we're going to take this money that you're sent in for your social security, quote unquote, we're going to put it in your lockbox that Al Gore wanted, and we're, we're going to put that in the general fund, then we're going to put a little piece of paper in here that says, I owe you. And that means I owe you however much money you just paid. And then if you want to believe that in the fantasy world that this is your account and one day it's going to mature and you're going to get paid, fine. Believe that. But what the reality is, is that Social Security and Medicare are programs that are paid for by taxes. No different than missiles. No different than school lunches. No different than uh, the EPA. No different than the Department of Energy. No different than... Uh, you know, NIH, no different than Dr. Fauci's $400,000 uh, severance, or I'm sorry, annual salary that he's now getting in retirement, I believe as well. He's getting some large amount in retirement, whatever the case is. So Social Security and Medicare are just programs. They are programs. There's nothing, there's no trust fund. There's no real trust fund. There's a trust fund that exists that has untradable securities in it, meaning these securities are, as if I 
owed money to my spouse after she gave me a hundred dollars. It's it's like if 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 I came home and I said, hey, I said Tracy, here's here's a thousand dollars. Go put this in your account. And she says, well, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take your thousand dollars, and I'm not going to put it in my account. I'm going to put it back into our joint account. But what I'm going to write on here is a thousand dollar IOU, and I'm going to put it in here. And this means that in the future you owe me a thousand dollars. But in the meantime, we're going to pretend that this account has value and we're going to pretend we have $2,000. The real $1,000 that you just gave me and I wrote an IOU for and gave back to you, plus the IOU. That counts as $1,000 too. That's what Social Security and Medicare are. Anyway, Donald Trump says those are great programs and, and Ron DeSantis wants to uh, wants to uh, eliminate them. And Ron DeSantis apparently did sign on to a bill to uh, raise the, raise the um, uh, age limit of Social Security which is something that may have to happen, as we just discussed before, in order to, quote, save the program. But either way, it doesn't matter because these programs are unsustainable. And the only way to get out of these programs is is to wind them down, to give people who are currently in there an option to get out. And the reason that's never going to happen is because the government relies on this money. This money is a regressive tax. This money is taxed to everybody. Now, some people get it back... Uh, some of the money back is earned income tax credit, but not everybody gets earned income, earned income tax credit. That's money that you get paid back for your payroll taxes. So payroll taxes are the taxes you pay for Social Security and uh, Medicare. And so those come out of your check. And then some people, 52% or 50%, I believe it is, of the, of the working community does not pay federal income tax. They just don't pay it. They don't qualify. They don't make enough money. So they get every bit of money paid that they pay in at the uh, during the year, they get back in March or April, whenever they file. And then uh, they get a big check from the government, and they're happy. They go out and buy a car, or they go buy a TV, or they go on a cruise, or whatever the case is, because they got money back from the government. And they don't, a lot of them, I mean, God bless them, are ignorant. They don't even know that that money was where that money came from. Well, on top of that, some of that money is money that was paid by them into payroll taxes, which was supposed to go in their lockbox that Al Gore wanted for Social Security and Medicare. Well, the government says, you know, that's not fair. Not everyone should have to contribute to their own retirement, even though that makes sense. If you're going to force everyone to do it, at least everyone should have to contribute. But they say, no, 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 that's not fair. We're going to give these people a rebate on their taxes that they paid towards their own retirement or Medicare. Everyone called that an earned income tax credit. So some people get back more than they pay in. And you know these people. I mean, they're, you know, okay. A lot of people get basically jackpots every April. Every April they get jackpot. So what 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 Ron DeSantis had wanted to do was to try to maybe pull in Social Security a little bit and, and do that. But unless we wind down Social Security and Medicare, it's always going to be a problem. And the only way to wind it down is to say, look, there's a sunset for people who are in it now. If you're currently this age, then Social Security is going to be there for you. You can opt out still if you want. But people who are this age, Social Security is not an option. Uh, There's got to be other options. And one of them is to save your own money. And if, if states want to set up their own little Social Securities or whatever the case is, whatever the case is, people should be allowed to opt out. And people should not be forced to pay in. But the government gets that money no matter what. 
And that's why it will never go away because that is a constant source of income. Because like I said, all payroll taxes go into the general fund and they get these token IOUs put in these other funds. So that's why Social Security and Medicare are the way they are. They are a constant source of government money to spend so that we can have a debt limit. And so that's the, that's the big thing that Ron DeSantis has uh, taken from uh, Donald Trump is criticism from the left. Donald Trump is criticizing Ron DeSantis, saying that he wants to take away Social Security and Medicare. And it's like I said, it's an old Democrat. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a songbook from the Democrat hymnal. Number page page five, probably. You know, after uh, the, the Republicans hate uh, uh, minorities, after the Republicans uh, want to uh, ban, um, you know, whatever the case is, you know, the Republicans want to uh, install a Christian theocracy. That's, that's you know, hymnal number six, page six. Anyway, Democrats always say that Republicans want to destroy Social Security and Medicare. That's what Donald Trump is saying now against Ron DeSantis. Plus, they're trying to make fun of him and say that he's got pudding fingers or something else, something bizarre. It's really, it's really strange stuff. The thing about Donald Trump, though, with this attack line that he's taken on Ron DeSantis is he's using the same strategy he used on Crooked Hillary and the same strategy he used uh, on Joe Biden unsuccessfully, I'll, I'll add, um, for the most part. And so but the difference is, is he's attacking now Ron DeSantis, who's probably the most popular governor if not in Florida history, uh, he's he's the most popular governor in the country right now. So he is the most popular uh, Republican governor, and he is probably the most popular governor, in, at least in my in my lifetime in Florida history, and won a a landslide. I didn't even call it a landslide, a complete slaughter of um, of a perennial candidate. Uh, last time I can't can't remember his name. He's already gone from my memory banks. Anyway, uh, former governor. Anyway, uh, so Ron DeSantis though is a a very exceptional uh, electoral winner. He he he's won big all across the state in Florida, twice now. Once once he barely squeaked by. The second time he destroyed he destroyed his uh, opponent. But now Donald Trump is saying, look, I'm going to turn my uh, same type of vitriol that I used against Crooked Hillary that people loved in, in the Republican base against Donald, against Ron DeSantis. And I'm going to use that way to destroy him. I don't think it's going to work because you do not win by attacking someone who's popular in your own, in your own party. You do not win overall. You may win the primary. You may get just enough of your voters to go after you in the primary to win. But in the general election, when it comes time, not everyone's going to come out and vote for Donald Trump the way they did before when he was seen as the guy who was fighting the Democrats. Now, Donald Trump, if he attacks Ron DeSantis like he's continue, like if he continues to attack him the way he's done, now Donald Trump is seen as the guy who, uh, you know, will throw a Republican under the bus if necessary, who will tack left if necessary. Uh, and, and will uh, and that doesn't, that's not going to get people out in the masses to go after uh, to go to the polls. And maybe, and this is the main part, not only will it not get them in the masses to go to the polls, it will not encourage them to have other people go to the polls. So if you're voting for Donald Trump, you may still vote for him, but you may not be so, uh, you may not be so enthusiastic. Tell your neighbor, Hey, you know, are you going to go vote? You know, you should vote for Donald Trump or, Hey, do you want me to help you? I'll take you to the polls to go vote for Donald Trump or, 
you may not even want to put a yard sign out, you know. We're, right now we have a Ron DeSantis sign. We had a Donald Trump sign for a long, or a Donald Trump flag for a long time. We had two of them. And one of them is faded. And uh, so we took it down. And then uh, the election happened in twenty eight or 2022 for DeSantis. So we still have our DeSantis sign up. Uh, next to our sign that says, if you want to come in our yard or in our house, that there's nothing in here worth your life because we will shoot you. We have that sign up too. Uh, anyway, we have our Ron DeSantis sign up and Tracy said, you know what? We're not going to, I'm not going to put up that other Trump flag. And we're not because Trump he's he's really, I mean, it's one thing to believe you're the best and believe you should be the winner. And it's even one thing to believe that you're owed it meaning the nomination. It's another thing to say it. And when you say it, it makes you look petty. It makes you look weak. And it also is just, it's just a turnoff. So anyway, so Donald Trump is doing that with uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, and I don't think it's going to help him in the general election if he is to win. And so here's a uh, Ron DeSantis was on with uh, Eric Bowling on Newsmax. And here's what, here's what Ron had to say. Governor Ron had to say about, What's going on with the uh, his entry into the people uh, to be able to do that? Um, I, I do believe that there's a limit uh, to the number of voters that would consider the former president at this point. I mean, we've seen it, um, you know, in Florida. We've seen it in places like Georgia. I think that there are some people that don't like Biden, uh, but they would like another option. So I think my ceiling is higher in a general election. Uh, and I made the, the pledge to people, you know, if you nominate me through this process, uh, then set your watch to January 20th, 2025. High noon, I'll be there taking the oath. I'll get it done. We'll make it happen. So there we go. There's Ron DeSantis hitting back against uh, Donald Trump and his unlikability in the general. And that's true. There is a limit. And there's a limit to everybody. Ron DeSantis has a limit too. Ron DeSantis thinks his ceiling's higher. It very well may be that Ron DeSantis's ceiling is higher. It very well may be that Ron DeSantis does not win the primary. If that happens, you're probably looking at another four years of Joe Biden. Because the Democrats will get the shock troops out more for going to go against Trump than they will against uh, DeSantis, I think. Now, I have also said in the past, and I stand by it, that I don't think any Republican can win this go around in 2024 only because of the fact that the Democrats have baked it into the cake the way that they do their elections, the way they run their elections and their precincts the way they do balloting, the way they do quote-unquote voting. I believe that they know, because they have all these people in their groups, you know, these analytical guys, these people. I mean, think about it. Think about all the different... They, they have a whole of Silicon Valley as, as leftist, okay? Think about all those computer people over there, all those programmers. How much have they given their knowledge into the DNC in order to figure out mathematically how many votes they have to have in each precinct in order to win these elections. See, Republicans get out there and they say, look, we need to get out the vote. We need to get out. We need to go out and go door to door. We need to knock on doors. We need to get people to vote. We need to have a, we need to have a big party. Uh, I mean, we need to have a big, uh, big tent. We need to get as many voters in here as possible. Uh, we need to appeal to the uh, minorities. We need to appeal to the older people. We need to appeal to the young people. Blah, blah. Democrats say, look, show me the electoral map. Okay. These are in our group. Uh, these are going to be blue. These are going to be red. 
All right, show me the swing states. All right, now show me in these swing states which pre which precincts are the swing precincts. Now, tell me how many votes do I need in each one of these if we think that the race is going to be this close. And if the race is going to be within two percentage points, usually in a tight race, then how many votes do we need here? And that's what they were able to do last last time, is they were able to go into each swing state and each swing county and swing those uh, votes completely to Joe Biden through whatever means, through trafficking of ballots, through uh, voter harvesting or ballot harvesting, through real get-out-the-vote efforts. Whatever the case is, they were able to do that, and I think that has not changed. The question is, possibly, is it that is Ron DeSantis able to beat Joe Biden by more than two points? So is there a point where your mathematical uh, predictions, where your models don't hold up? Okay. And I think this is what happened in 2016. I honestly do. I think, actually, I think that this has been going on for a long time. This, what I'm talking about, this analytical thing where you go into the swing states and blah, blah, blah. Why do I say that? Well, in 2012, I distinctly remember, people may not remember this because your memory gets clouded by, you know, history and how it's, how it's retold. And that's, and you know, that's true of history for everything. You know, history is always clouded by the historians. The historians put their own spin on it. And the, sp- and the spin or whatever the case is, the narrative from the Obama years is that Obama was this <clears throat> messianic figure who just people falling over themselves to vote for. And, you know, he had these crowds that just stretched for miles and miles and miles like Donald Trump's crowds. And people were fainting, on the, which they were fainting. Um, they were always fainting at, at Obama's speeches. Oh, that, that person uh, fell down there. Oh. Uh, help her, help her out there. You know, they were fainting in his, you know, he was, a, he was the second coming anyway. But during the 2012 election where we nominated extreme severe conservative, as he would call himself, Mitt Romney, when Mitt Romney uh, ran, he got bigger crowds than uh, Barack Obama. People may not remember this, but Mitt Romney had bigger, more enthusiastic, more enthusiastic crowds. Obama, believe it or not, the messianic figure, the with the booming voice, with the reverb, and uh, you know, like Joe Biden says, clean, articulate, clean black guy. That he he didn't get that big of crowds. He got he filled gymnasiums, and when he got elected, he filled uh, uh, the place in Chicago. I forgot the name of it is, where they recently had shootings, uh, where Obama gave his his speech where he looked like God before the pillars. Anyway, Obama was able to do big, but before during the 2012 election, Obama was talking to small crowds. He was talking to, uh, he was doing like he's done with when he was, uh, campaigning for Biden. They showed him they were in gymnasiums, half filled gymnasiums, school gymnasiums. So Obama wasn't this hugely popular figure that everyone likes to think. But what happened was in 2012, Romney lost. I think Romney lost by five points, which is a, you know, it's a pretty much, that's a, that's not a blowout, but it's, it's not close. Romney lost by a lot. That was nationally. But what happened in certain precincts, I remember, I think it was in Detroit, certain precincts, I remember this, this odd thing. There was a report that said out of like 200,000 votes or something like that, Romney got zero. 
And I was thinking, now how is that even mathematically possible? I mean, sure, th- you can say that there's people who are going to vote for a certain guy and it's fairly predictable, but still, zero votes out of a whole precinct? I thought that was just, just seems strange. And I think that's when these uh, vote configurers, these people who are behind the behind the scenes with their chicanery, get a little bit too overzealous. And they start they start shredding a little bit too many ballots. You know, they say, look, these are the Romney votes. What do you want to do with them? You know, you want to take off this many of them? Throw them all away. What? It's going to look suspicious. I don't care. Get rid of all of them. I don't know if that happened or not, but I don't know how else you explain zero votes in a whole precinct. There's got to be at least one dissenting vote. Um, so anyway, that's what that's what I think is going to happen. And the question is, is DeSantis able to overcome that? And I think what happened was, back to my point, in 2016, I think they had the same game plan in place. And, they, and, and Donald Trump, because of their polling, their polling was showing, you remember, it's a famous poll, it was like, I think it was New York Times, the day before the election. Donald Trump, or I'm sorry, Hillary Clinton, 98%, uh, 98% chance to win, 2% chance of uh, Trump to win. And, and obviously that was wrong. It was wrong by a lot. But um, I think what happened was Donald Trump outperformed what their models were saying. Their models said, look, Trump's going to get this many votes and uh, we're going to be able to get this many votes and then we'll tweak this many votes and then we'll win. And I think they've been doing this for a long time. So can we outperform? So can they predict what DeSantis will do? Or or any of the others. Nikki Haley. <laughs> Tim Scott. I don't think so. Uh, Asa Hutchinson. I don't think so. But anyway, I... But I think they know what Donald Trump's ceiling is. That's the point. And like Ron DeSantis said, they know that ceiling is, I was looked at it the other day, someone wrote an article about it. So Donald Trump got 46% of the vote, of the popular vote in uh, 2016. And then in 2017, when he got 10 million more votes than he got the previous time, I'm sorry, 2016, he got, six, uh, he got 46%. And then in 2020, uh, he got 47%. So he got 1% more of the popular vote in 2020 after getting 10 million more votes than he got the previous time. So Donald Trump, and then the point was, is, is Donald Trump's ceiling going to be higher this time or lower? And their, their, their prediction was lower, which I think is true, especially because now he's targeting Republicans and people have Trump fatigue. I mean, honest to God, uh, how, how much more, coverage can you have of one person and it's not Trump's fault necessarily. I mean, he doesn't help himself. I always thought that Trump's best time when he was most popular was the time when he was kicked off all social media and you weren't able to hear anything about Trump unless he released one of his statements. And then someone posted that statement on Twitter. That's the only time you ever heard from him unless you went to directly to the source. That's when Trump was his most popular because again, back to memory and history we were dealing with some shitty times then. I mean, those were bad times. Not, not that they're better now, but this was a time when inflation was first hitting and people were going to the store and they're like saying, what? $8 for a two by four. That's not right. It's two ninety nine. Three dollars It's $3, $8 for a two by four. Can't be right. You know, how, why are, why is the beef now $5 a pound? You know, ground beef. Why is it $5 a pound? This is the time when that was going on. And people were saying, 
well, we know what Donald Trump was president. None of this was going on. And people had this, this fondness, this, uh, you know, this, this memory of Donald Trump. And then Donald Trump wasn't out there talking all the time and saying the things that he says. And then people were saying, you know what? I miss that guy. We need to get Donald Trump back in office. And then what happened? He gets back on social media. He gets back and he, he starts talking and, you know, and then the, the, all the lawsuits and everything else. And it's just, like I said, it's not all his fault, but some of it is his, his doing, uh, you know, a little bit of Trump goes a long way. And after four years of the office and then two years out of the office, is his ceiling going to be higher than 47%? Probably not. So I think Ron DeSantis has a great point as far as, you know, people that I know who are voting, if they're going to have the primary, they're voting for DeSantis, at least in Florida. The people we've talked to, some of our patients, other people. And it's for the similar reasons that I've said. He's younger. Uh, he's, he's got a better chance of winning. And there's something about Trump's attack on DeSantis, which is very off-putting. It would be completely fine for Trump to say, look, I'm going to beat DeSantis uh, because, you know, I'm better than him. I got more experience or whatever. But just the... I mean, just it's just uh, it shows a pettiness, I guess you'd say that you would you would hope that uh, the former president wouldn't exhibit. You know, when you when you're releasing ads showing Ron DeSantis eating pudding with his fingers, and I don't even know what that means. It's just odd. It's just strange, and it, and it doesn't make you want to run out and go vote for the guy uh, that made the ad. So anyway, Ron DeSantis is in. Tim Scott's in. Uh, Nikki Haley's in. Uh, who else is in? Uh, oh, Chris Christie's in. That's that's interesting. Chris Christie is pining for an MSNBC job. He has yet to land that gig. I think Chris Christie would like nothing better than to have a a show on CNN or MSNBC. That's his goal out of this. Um, that's his goal out of this presidential turnaround because I don't think anybody wants Chris Christie in his cabinet, in his or her cabinet. Um, what else? Nikki Haley, eh. Nikki Haley's got a tendency to run towards the establishment. And she has a tendency to maybe stab in the back a little bit, I think. Tim Scott, Tim Scott's a nice guy. I don't know what really, uh, how he would match up against DeSantis in terms of experience and things of that nature. He seems like a nice guy. I don't know much about him. Um, what else is there? There's Asa Hutchinson, who is a, he's a household name in his household only. Uh, who else is there? No, we're missing other people. Don't want to get short shrift. Oh, Larry Elder's running. Larry Elder is a talk radio host. Very nice guy. Very, ran for governor of California. Um, almost, almost was able to become governor of California. And maybe if he had become governor, we'd be having a different discussion right now. But the, but the point is, is he... He's got as much chance as Pat Buchanan had beating H.W. Bush back in the day. It's it's not going to happen. Um, who else? Anyway, that's the main people. Mike Pence is probably going to get in. Uh, Mike Pence has as good a chance of winning as probably Nikki Haley. I think his his ceiling, if we're talking about ceilings in the primary, is probably 2%. Chris Christie's ceiling is probably 0.8%. I don't know. Maybe not that much. Anyway, so that's it for uh, elections. We'll see. It's going to be uh, kind of interesting. I think it'd be interesting. One other thing about those elections is primaries. People get worried about primaries, about people getting nicked up and scarred up. I don't think that's the way to look at it. 
I think you look at a primary like you look at uh, I think you look at a primary the same way you look into going to the national championship game when you are going to a bowl game. I'm sorry, going to a uh, championship game. So there's two schools of thought about bowl games. I'm sorry, the national championship game. Well, now it's different because they have playoffs. All right, forget whatever I said about that. Let's pretend like it's back in the old days. You had a national championship game, and then you had two teams going into it. One of the teams had a one of the teams had a, uh, a conference championship. Let's pick Florida. Florida has a conference championship. Let's say they have to play Alabama, and then Florida State does not have a conference championship. This is back in the '90s. Now let's remember this. So picture Florida's first national championship game, 1996. Florida is going into the national championship game against Florida State. And before they do that, they have to go against uh, Alabama in the SEC championship. I believe it was Alabama that year. And uh, Florida State did not because at that point, ACC did not have a championship game. So Florida State, by virtue of their status as the top number one pick, was going to be the uh, in the national championship picture. And then Florida was going to have to play Florida State. Well, there's some people that say, well, you shouldn't. That's bad. It's better not to have a conference game because then you can rest up. You can, uh, you know, you can, you can, I don't know, you can study more. You can relax, whatever the case is. And then when you go for that big, that big game, you're all rested up and you're ready to go give your best. And the other side of the coin says, well, no, it's better to have the championship game because then you work out some final kinks. And when you go in there, you're not stale. You're you just came off a, a good a good fight, a good game, and now you're at the top of your game. So that's the two schools of thought. I I prefer the, I prefer the latter to the former, meaning that I prefer someone go into a fight or a game or an election with some battle scars, with some experience, you know, sharpness. You know, it, it, it's if you look at fights historically. When 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 fighters, especially when they're getting older, have taken off a long time between national uh, title fights, they do poorly. Uh, Marvin Hagler, for instance, when he took off, Marvin Hagler fought John Mugabe in uh, 1985, I believe it was, and John Mugabe, or maybe it was 86, and John Mugabe at that point was a hellacious fighter. This guy was like, I think he was 36 and 0 with 36 knockouts. And John Mugabe gave Hagler hell. I think it was fifteen round fight then, either fifteen or twelve rounds. I can't remember. They cut off the. They went from fifteen to twelve rounds around that time, but I think it was. I think it may have still been fifteen rounds then. I can't remember exactly. Anyway, John Mugabe gave Marvin Hagler hell, and Marvin Hagler said, "Beat him." He he won a decision, uh, but he said, "You know what? The hell with this. I'm going to take off some time." I am going to wait a year. And he waited a long time before he defended again. And when he defended again, he then defended against Sugar Ray Leonard, who had come out of retirement, a five-year thereabouts retirement. He had retired after he had a detached retina. And then uh, after that, he came back and he fought one guy, Kevin Howard, beat him, then went back into retirement. So basically, for the for five years, he had had one fight. Anyway, Sugar Ray Leonard comes out of retirement. Hagler loses a split decision to Sugar Ray Leonard. Controversial decision, and I think probably Hagler probably won. But, you know, Sugar Ray with his uh, showboating and his flamboyance and was able to sway the judges perhaps, and then he won the fight. Anyway, the point is is that Hagler had this long layoff, and I don't think it helped him at all. And I read a, 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 someone who wrote 
uh, article about it. He said rather than uh, preserving him, it hastened his decline, meaning that this layoff brought him down. And I think the same thing goes for these presidential guys. If Trump was to walk into the, let's say Trump wins, okay, he wins the primary. Let's say there wasn't a primary. Let's say Trump, there was no one challenging Trump, or the only person challenging Trump was Chris Christie and uh, Asa Hutchinson and some other, you know, people who have no chance. And Trump just didn't even show up to the debates. He won just by being on the ballot. He didn't have to talk to these guys. If he had gone into the general election with that, I think he would have a worse chance of beating Biden because he doesn't, he's not going to be sharp. He's going to be rusty. He's going to be complacent. But if he goes through a primary having to fend off Ron DeSantis, the most popular governor in Florida, he has to fend off, you know, whoever else, you know, but he has to go through the process. He has to sharpen his, he has to, uh, he has to sharpen his um, message. He has to, he has to be engaged. He has to have his team engaged. That's the other thing. Your team, you know, you have your team has got to be on their on their toes. And so I think going through a primary is going to be either is going to be better for whoever the eventual nominee is, especially Ron DeSantis. Because Ron DeSantis has never run a national campaign. You know, he's a he's a he's a congressman and he was a governor. So he's only run in Florida statewide elections. And so it'll be good for Ron DeSantis now to run a national campaign against someone like Trump. And if DeSantis wins, it will be for the better that he had defeated Trump. And the same goes for Trump. If Trump wins, it'll be better that he had defeated DeSantis. The key is who's going to be the guy to go against Biden, uh, who is the walking dead. But you're not even going to go against Biden. You're going against the Democrat apparatus, the Democrat machine, the Democrat voter, whatever you call it, whatever you want to call their way that they get ballots. Want to call it voting, call it voting. Anyway, so Joy Behar, oh, what a doll she is. Joy Behar says that <clears throat> Tim Scott and Clarence Thomas don't understand what it means to be black in America. He doesn't get it. So Joy Behar weighed in with her ample, uh, uh, with her ample intelligence on the view and said that Tim Scott, who is the uh, Republican senator from uh, North South Carolina, doesn't understand how it <laughs> doesn't understand what it means to be black in America. She says uh, he's one of those guys, you know, he's like Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Black Republicans believes in pulling yourselves up by the bootstraps rather than to me, understanding the systemic racism that African-Americans face in this country and other minorities. Behar said he doesn't get it. Neither does Clarence. And that's why they're Republicans. She added. So that is the inside the mind of a <clears throat> liberal white supremacist. Uh, she went on to assail Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, accusing him of not being conservative and referred to him as Ron the fascist. So these are, these uh, liberals really, <clears throat> the way that they go about presenting their arguments for their ideas, they don't understand it, but it comes off as very off putting to minorities and whoever else they're trying to um, take up for, let's say, because by, by saying that you understand better than a black person what it means to be black shows that you believe you're supreme you're uh you're superior to them you know it shows that you believe in your supremacy and in order to feel sorry for someone you always have to feel like you're superior to them 
So that when Democrats and liberals and uh, people like that go around feeling sorry for people and, you know, saying that they need this and they need that, they're really saying that because they believe that they can't make it unless it was for the kindness of their uh, liberal heart. And usually it's the kindness of their white liberal heart, like Lily White, Joy Behar. White as a ghost. And so she believes that Tim Scott doesn't understand what it means to be a black person because he doesn't go by the rule book that the liberals have set out. And what does the rule book say? The rule book says that the only way that you're able to succeed in America, if you're a minority, is to vote Democrat, is to follow the Democrat Party playbook. And that's why they hate Clarence Thomas. They hate him. Because not only did Clarence Thomas not follow the rule book, but he tells them he didn't follow the rule book. And they hate that. He is he is uh, he's really making a mess of their Cheerios when he says that. Because they believe so strongly in their intellectual capacity. They believe so strongly in their ability to formulate programs and formulate different strategies and to help these poor, oppressed, inferior People make it through their big government programs. And here comes a a black person. Here comes Clarence Thomas. Here comes Tim Scott with the audacity to say they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. What? You did what? You did not utilize our social programs. You were not on welfare long term. You got off of welfare if your family was on welfare. You voted for Republicans. You hold conservative views. You don't believe in collectivism. That is the worst in their mind. That is, they hold those people below, if you can believe it. White liberals, like Joy Behar, hold black conservatives like Tim Scott, like uh, Clarence Thomas, and if she knew anything, she probably has no idea who Thomas Sowell is or Walter Williams. If she if she knew who they were, though, she would hold them in contempt, too, lower than she would any white conservative because they have really just thrown it in the face of white liberals that we don't need your programs. You can take your programs and stick them where the sun doesn't shine. And they hate that. It makes them so angry. And it reveals, like I said, what their true heart is, is they don't care about. Yeah, they might care about black people the same way they care about whatever. But they don't care the same way that they, uh, they, let's put it this way. Joy Behar, Behar, I don't think, is so concerned about black people is as she is concerned about people thinking that she's concerned about black people. She is more concerned about how people perceive her as a big-hearted, good liberal who is now putting down this black conservative because he did not go by the left-wing playbook as far as gaining his, uh, gaining his, his status in life, becoming a senator. She's more concerned about people knowing that she despises him than she is. Uh, she's more concerned about people thinking that she's a... Uh, uh, cares about black people because I don't think they do. I mean, look at, I doubt, I doubt Nancy Pelosi. I'm sorry, Nancy Pelosi. I doubt people like Joy Behar or Nancy Pelosi 
are any different than uh, someone who uh, they supposedly uh, think is a bad person who, who says, so let's put it this way. Joy Behar doesn't have black people in her neighborhood, I don't think. Not the kind of black people that uh, she supposedly likes, that she supposedly wants to be around. And not only that, but she doesn't associate with them in any way. Not only do they live in her neighborhood, she doesn't associate with them. She probably never has in her life. And that's another thing that drives white liberals is guilt. White liberals feel guilty. That's white liberal guilt. And they feel guilty and then they project. So they say, look, when I was growing up, I lived in a lily white background. I didn't know anybody of didn't look like me, really. If I did, you know, so be it. But I want to make up for that now. And I'm going to go out of my way. I'm going to show how big of a heart I have. And so I'm going to go on national TV and I'm going to say that Tim Scott's a bad person or Tim Scott doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. And he's like Clarence Thomas, one of those uppity blacks that just won't, they don't know what's good for him and they, they won't follow instructions that we've given them. And because of that, I'm going to call him out on national TV. And because of that, Joy Behar continues to be, as Clay Travis says, either the stupidest or one of the stupidest people uh, on broadcast TV today. She's an embarrassment. What else do we have here? Uh, well, the Durham report's come out. I, I know that there's been a lot of stuff come out in the last two weeks. The Durham report has come out, and the Durham report, all it has done is put a f- official stamp on what we have known for now four years, probably, or, or maybe going back, yeah, probably since 2018, that the uh, intelligence agencies in our country are uh, partisan. We have a partisan uh, intelligence agency. We have a partisan Department of Justice, as you can see, with uh, January 6th and, uh, uh, versus BLM. Speaking of BLM, we've got to talk about them before we go. But anyway, so the Durham report has come out and has shown this. This is the biggest political scandal ever, ever. I don't know. Maybe the teapot dome was worse. I don't remember. But anyway, this is the biggest political scandal, certainly, of anybody who's listening to this lifetime. This makes Watergate look like nothing. Watergate was a break-in into a Democrat office to get some, uh, what? I don't know, to steal some documents? I don't even know what they did. How does that compare at all to what what was done under the uh, uh, administration of Barack Obama? You know, how does that compare at all? The spying on the campaign of a candidate. The, the, uh, the use of intelligence agencies. The use of... Um, clandestine operations to spy on a president. How does that, you know, it's hard to even fathom. And the interesting thing is, is that the corruption is right there before our eyes and they say they, they don't even care. I saw there was a article that said that some, some upper echelon member of the FBI said, that uh, you know, she hadn't read the Durham report, and nobody that she knows in the FBI. Oh, sorry, scratch that. She hadn't read the Durham report, and nobody that uh, is even in the agency of Hoover's boys has read it either. It just shows you they don't care. They don't. It's the Durham report to them is a partisan hack effort because they see themselves as the true. Uh, custodians, I guess, of the government. 
It's just like they talked about when Trump was in the presidency. The deep state, you know, rhino Republicans made fun of the deep state. Democrats made it fun of the deep state. Oh, it doesn't exist. You know, people like Jonah Goldberg over at the dispatch or wherever the hell he is. Or the bulwark or whatever the hell he is. And all these other never Trumpers. Oh, there's no deep state. Deep state's a fantasy. That's that's BS. Deep state, sweep state, blah, 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 blah. Deep state exists. The deep state is very alive and well. The deep state runs Washington, D.C. And the deep state is liberal. The deep state is interested in power. I wouldn't even say they're liberal. I'd say the deep state is pro-government. Pro-government is pro-liberal, pro-left. Let's put it that way. That's, that's how you can think of it. You know, Mark Levin had a good way of describing it when he, uh, I think it was a, a Meritopia. Maybe it was Liberty and Tyranny. I can't remember. But he broke it down into being uh, one word, a statist. A statist is someone who believes that the power of the government is in preeminence and that the power of the government is the objective. And that makes you a statist. If you believe in making government bigger and stronger and making the individual weaker, then you are a statist. Does it matter if you are a Nazi statist? Does it matter if you're a Maoist statist? Does it matter if you're a Trotskyite statist? It doesn't matter if you are a, uh, a Pol Pot statist. You are a statist if you believe in using the power of the government to make the government bigger and stronger and the individual smaller. That's what the intelligence agencies are. They are statists. That's what the Democrat Party is. The Democrat Party is the party of government. The Democrat Party runs the government for the most part. All of the bureaucracy is Democrat. You know, Washington, D.C., I think is 97% voters are Democrat or something like that. 93% maybe, you know. Probably similar to New York City. So the statists are the ones. And the Durham report confirms the deep state. The Durham report confirms it. And it's like I said, it doesn't, it's not a surprise to anybody, but at least it makes it official. And there's people who say, well, it's not official. He's a partisan hack. I forgot who it was. Oh, Andrew McCabe. Disgraced former deputy uh, director of Hoover's Boys. You know, he said, well, we knew this was coming out. We knew this was going to be a partisan hit job, blah, 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 blah. You know, this all, it's all baloney. It's none of it's, none of it's true. Everything we did was justified, blah, blah, blah. So they're saying, you know, it was justified. Spying on Trump was just say they're not denying it anymore. They just say it's justified. Anyway, the Durham report. I mean, if you could talk to your family member, let's say, you, you know, they're not very, you know, they're like, ah, Democrats, Republicans, ah, maybe I'll over Biden. He seems like a nice guy. He wears those cool glasses. He likes ice cream. I like ice cream. Say, what about the Durham report? They said, well, what is the Durham report? The Durham report showed that, you know, the government conspired against Donald Trump. Do you think that's fair? What do you mean? It showed a, that's not true. That's not what they, no, 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 it is true. Hoover's boys and the other alphabet group, worked with Democrats to spy on a Republican. And and that helped, and, and even though he still won, but they, they, humstr- they hamstringed him for his whole uh, presidency. You know, and just make him think a little bit deeper. But that's the thing is that 
these kind of things that are out there, we just like, oh, you know, Watergate, you know, Watergate. They said Watergate's bad. That is the problem with the media. That is the problem. And like I said, I saw this other article. I think I have it here. It says that 60% of, where is it? I have it here somewhere. Uh, it says like 60% of the people believe that the mainstream media is involved in, oh, here we go. <clears throat> this is from Breitbart. All right, it says the 60% say establishment media to blame for misinformation. It says, uh, it says six out of 10 Americans say the establishment media are to blame for misinformation. Associated Press, Nork Center for Public Affairs Research, and Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Poll revealed Monday. This was from May 1st. Says while sixty percent say the media are to blame for misinforming the public, a similar number say they bear responsibility for addressing it. Oh, that's funny. So the media bears responsibility for addressing it. Yeah. Nine out of ten Americans say the media's misinformation is a problem. Thirty-three percent of Americans told the pollsters they see misle- misleading establishment media headlines or false claims from politicians every day. Here it goes. Despite the skepticism, Democrats rate the establishment media more favorably than Republicans. That's a surprise. of Republicans say the media are hurting the nation compared to only 23% of Democrats. So that's the point is your family member who thinks that Joe Biden with the aviator sunglasses and chocolate ice cream may be a good choice. Definitely over Donald Trump because he's a mean, mean guy or Ron DeSantis because he doesn't have the experience of 50 years in Washington. Um, you know, they will see this and because they view the media with only 23% skepticism, you know, when the Durham report comes out, they're not going to be skeptical when the media says, uh, heck, heck, uh, heck investigator, Bill Durham, whatever his name is, came out with his report and, uh, it's been panned by people like Andrew McCabe. Here's Andrew McCabe. And Andrew McCabe gets on there and pans it. And they're like, ah, Durham reports BS. That's what I heard on TV. That's what Andrew McCabe said. Because they only see 23% skepticism when you see 66% when you look at the media. And that's the problem we face is that, like I said, I was listening to something on Charlie Kirk yesterday. He was talking to someone about the uh, the leftist infiltration of the uh, of the institutions. Is That's what's the key. Is leftists have infiltrated at every level of every institution in America. Really, that's the truth. The church, uh, look at, look at the current Pope, you know, uh, the, the church, the, the school system. Absolutely. Government. That's a, that's a, that's far, far gone government, church, government, science, you know, the left has infiltrated science. Look at climate change, for instance, for God's sakes, climate change is the biggest, I have a whole article about it. I'm not going to be able to get to it this week, but. It's from the American greatness called the corruption of climate science, climate change, you know, COVID two, SARS COVID two, COVID. Look at all the different crap that's out there that's in the science that's got a pro government, pro big state agenda behind it. Both of those things do. Climate change, big government. COVID, big government. So the left is infiltrated in all these different levels. So how do we get out? I mean, the left is social media, except for Twitter is completely controlled by. And now that they've uh, got this new, uh, apparently CEO, who's from, I guess she's from the, uh, 
what is it? W, not WHO, what is it? World Economic Forum, some type of big shot. The World Economic Forum is going to run Twitter now, apparently. So it's hard to it's hard to combat, but that's that's what we're doing here, trying. I mean, you got to go at the end of the day. You got to say, look, what did I do? What did I do? What did I did I stand around and watch? You have to do something. Each in your own way, or not, or not, or or not, and then this is the and then in the future, this is what you have. All the time, Target partners with Satanist designer for gay pride collection. This is from Breitbart. You probably heard about this. So this person who is a designer for this uh, gay pride collection. Woke Target Corporation has partnered for its new pride clothing line with UK-based Aprilon, which insists, quote, Satan loves you and Satan respects pronouns. Anyway, that would be the, you know, this is, these are uh, clothes for children that promote sexuality. Anyway, so that's that's the kind of thing that, so if you just stand by and say, well, you know, what are we going to do? It's just sway the world. That's what you'll have in the future. And you, you look at your children. When your grandchildren, take this one. In the future, maybe not that far in the future, when, you're, when your grandchild runs up to you and says, Grandpa, Grandpa, Grandma, Grandma, look, look at my new, look at my new uh, swimsuit. And it's a boy, and he's got his penis tucked away in his new Target tuck-away friendly bathing suit with his top on to cover his non-existent breasts. You can say, well... What am I gonna do? I'm just, uh, just part of it. I just, I just fall. I just do what I told. Joe Biden likes ice cream. Aviator sunglasses is a cool guy. Anyway, well, so, oh, before we go, Black Lives Matter. God, this is from the FreeBeacon.com, Washington Free Beacon. Black activists distance themselves from Black Lives Matter amid financial collapse. Okay, it says. A coalition of 26 local Black Lives Matters chapters once closely allied with the national group slammed the charity in a Tuesday statement which laid blame for the group's demise on co-founder Patrice Cullors. Cullors, a self-proclaimed trained Marxist, has come under fire for following revelations last year that Black Lives Matters uses charitable largesse to enrich her family and friends. The plummeting of donations to Black Lives Matter is further evidence that donors want to fund the work not high price consult not high price consultants to coalition black lives matter grassroots said in a statement alleging that it is now quote engaged in a fight for the soul of black lives matter tax documents obtained by the free beacon show that black lives matter global network foundation the national arm of the movement blew through two thirds of the 90 million the group raised following george floyd's death in the summer of 2020 and suffered a massive drop in donations in its 2022 financial uh, fiscal year Black Lives Matter during the tax year ending June 2022 spent more than $10.5 million on high-priced contractors, many of them with close ties to Colors. Two companies run by her brother, Paul Colors, in 2022 raked in $1.6 million, providing, quote, professional security services for Black Lives Matter. He also collected a $126,000 salary working as, quote, head of security for the Battle Charity, a job that entailed providing the swanky $6 million Los Angeles mansion, the charity secretly purchased donor cash in 2021. It says, Shaloma, 
Bowers, Culler's close associate and chosen successor to lead the charity after she resigned, brought in $1.7 million to his company, Bowers Consulting, providing management and consulting services. <laughs> anyway, there's Salundra of the uh, Black uh, Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is the Salundra of the racial pressure groups. Salundra, they failed a uh, windmill company that uh, Barack Obama championed and gave a lot of money to. Loans. So that's what they do is they give these money to these groups because they're doing the right thing. You know, saving the climate, Solyndra. Uh Saving black people, Black Lives Matter. And so let's give them money. And in the case of Solyndra, they got tax dollars. In the case of Black Lives Matter, I'm sure they got tax dollars too, but they got a lot of money from woke corporations. Woke, white, liberal guilt paid Black Lives Matter lots and lots and lots of money because they had to show that they were not racist. They believed in uh, whatever. Uh, they believed that George Floyd uh, didn't deserve to die. And, 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 and if you didn't believe that and put up the money, you're a racist. So it wasn't enough that you said, well, George Floyd, that, God, that, that's, that shouldn't have happened. I wish it never happened. You can't say that. You have to say, show me the money. Show me the money that George Floyd shouldn't have happened. And the corporations were like, Jesus, okay, fine. Here, God, how much you want? 10 million? You know, his hand's still out. 15? Uh, here you go. Take it. And then you got people like Lady Antebellum. They said, look, Antebellum's racist. We're Lady A. And then they sued the Lady A that was actually the Lady A, which was a black woman. <laughs> Funny. Some, some other artist was called Lady A. And so Lady Antebellum, the country act, which I don't know who they are, but I know they're a country act, changed their name to Lady A because uh, antebellum's racist. Antebellum means before the Civil War. And of course, that is racist, I guess, maybe before the Civil War. I guess it's racist because before the Civil War, there was slavery. Therefore, everything that came before the Civil War is now racist. That's how we that's how we teach history now. You know, we get we can't just teach the history because it's better to forget than to know. I guess that's the mantra of the left. You know, it's better to forget than to know. So we shouldn't know about slavery. We should just forget about it. It never happened. Antebellum South, slavery, horrible situation, horrible institution, you know. Probably the most slavery in general, I'm not just talking about antebellum slavery, but slavery in general, chattel slavery, the the possession of one human, has got to be the most uh, egregious insult that's ever happened to man except for murder or, or other some up with other assault. But to own another person, to uh, to be able to to uh, just just to control another person in that fashion is so immoral. But now we're not even supposed to remember it. We're supposed to just forget about it. So antebellum is racist because it's ever existed. Let's not even talk about it. So Lady A is just, uh, well, antebellum's bad. Anyway, so Winn-Dixie, they were going to change their name. That never happened. That was a, that was a bait and switch. When Dixie was going to become something else, because Dixie, you see, is from the South. South had slavery, therefore the South is bad. Therefore, when Dixie was going to become, I don't know, 
I don't know what they're going to become. They didn't, but they said they were, and that's what got the that's what got the BLM people off their backs. BLM probably went to Win Dixie and they're like, "Give me ten million. And uh, Win Dixie's like, uh, I, don't, "I don't have ten million. How about I change my name? Uh, we'll go from Win Dixie to Win 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 some groceries." And they said, "All right, but you better change your name." And we'll take $5 million. And so I bought him $5 million. And then later on when Dixie said, I'm not going to pay you nothing. I'm not even going to change. I'm not going to pay anything more and I'm not going to change my name. Uh, one other thing. Here we go. This is reported by Breitbart. CNN. Some women are opting for sterilization post-row. Uh, this is from Catherine Hamilton. Some women are, quote, opting for sterilization as pro-life laws restricting abortion are passed throughout the country following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, CNN reported this week. Although there are no national statistics on whether more women have opted for sterilization because of legal cases limiting abortion rights, some doctors say they've recently seen an increase in requests for such procedures, the left-leaning outlet reported. I would say that they're the uh, uh, far-left outfit, but that's just me. Dr. Leah Tatum, a spokesperson for the pro-abortion American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, who practices in Austin, told the outlet that, quote, being concerned about access to abortion care has definitely driven up the request for sterilizations. That's bad for the abortion industry. Where are you going to get the abortions if people are being sterilized? Are they even doing the sterilizations at uh, Planned Parenthood? I see about three times it consults for sterilizations as I used to, Tatum said. CNN talked to several women who say they got themselves sterilized in response to pro-life laws restricting abortion. In January, as a 28th birthday present to herself, Mariah Marsh got herself sterilized. Five months later, she says she's very glad she did. Marsh has since known since she was a teenager she doesn't want children. A few years ago, the diagnosis of myasthenia gravis, a neuromuscular disease that can make pregnancy risky, further solidified her decision. See, this is a very thoughtful person, I think. Marsh was reportedly not in a rush to get sterilized until the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It scared me. I knew the only way I could protect myself is to go ahead and get the surgery. It's a surgery I knew I could always have. My timeline was pushed up by fear. Now, only way she could protect herself. I guess I guess she's saying the only way she could protect herself if she engaged in sex without trying to prevent pregnancy. But I don't know for sure. But anyway, that's another way you could protect yourself is birth control or whatever the case is. But I know birth control can fail. But anyway, back to the point is, I think it's very smart of her to do this. This is a very mature thing that she did. And I think CNN is probably uh, trying to show this as like some type of, this is this is awful. And these poor women are being forced to get sterilized instead of having abortions. This is the smart thing to do. I mean, there's been an increase in sterilizations of men as well. That's, I mean, this is the way it should be. Unless you see abortion as a birth control, which we were told that it's not. Well, we used to be told it's not. And then as as it became closer and closer to it looking like Roe v. Wade would be overturned, they said, look, all rules are off. Abortion is our right. We can do for birth control from you know six weeks to nine months. We don't care. But before, back in the days, like Bill Clinton, they said abortion should be rare, uh, legal, and something else. You know, but they, they want to, but they say, look, we're not, birth control is not an option. Birth control is what happens when people get in a situation where, you know, just despite every effort, they become pregnant and they can't have the baby because of a health problem or 
whatever the case is, or they they can't afford it. The birth, but people don't get the people don't use abortion as birth control. That's silly. That's a that's a right wing myth. Well, apparently not. Anyway, so um, but this this uh, but Planned Parenthood can't be I, I this every time they sterilize someone that is money out of their pocket. That's like that's like making your final sale. You know, imagine if you said, look, I'm going to sell you a car and I know this car is going to run forever. You would hand them the keys, but you would have a tear in your eye because, you know, you're never going to see that customer again. That's what it is when Planned Parenthood gives a woman a tubal ligation, removes her fallopian tubes because they've said, look, you're never going to have a baby. You're never going to get pregnant. I'm never going to aspirate that fetus out of you. And then you just, it's got to be heartbreaking for Planned Parenthood. And that's probably, that's probably where CNN's coming from. They didn't say that. And they probably don't even realize that they did. They probably look at it that way as that's the natural feeling is look, CNN saying, God, poor Planned Parenthood. They're never going to, these women are getting sterilized. They're getting tubal ligations and there's going to all this abortions are never going to happen. You know, and they're like, oh my God, what's Planned Parenthood going to do? That's the way CNN looks at it, probably. The far left CNN. <clears throat> but they didn't say that because they think that's what you're supposed to think naturally. That's the way I have to analyze it to let you know what they think. That's what I think they think. Anyway, that's it for this week. Join us next week on Dr. Tommy's show, uh, live on Rumble or via podcast. Thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing. Have a good weekend. And until next time, bye-bye. 